Chapter Eleven of the Life Everlasting by Marie Corelli. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Lisa Statler. One Way of Love. When I left Oxford, he said, as I told you before, I left what I conceived to be slavery, that is, a submissively ordered routine of learning in which there occurred nothing new, nothing hopeful nothing really serviceable. I mastered all there was to master, and carried away honours, which I deemed hardly worth winning. It was supposed then, most people would suppose it, that as I found myself the possessor of an income of between five and six thousand a year, I would naturally live my life, as the phrase goes, and enter upon what is called a social career. Now, to my mind, a social career simply means social sham, and to live my life had always a broader application for me than for the majority of men. So, having ascertained all I could concerning myself and my affairs from my father's London solicitors, and learning exactly how I was situated with regard to finances and what is called the practical side of life, I left England for Egypt, the land where I was born. I had an object in view, and that object was not only to see my own old home, but to find out the whereabouts of a certain great sage and mystic philosopher, long known in the East by the name of Heliobus. I started, and the blood rushed to my cheeks in a burning flame. I think you knew him, he went on, addressing me directly with a straight glance. You met him some years back, did you not? I bent my head in silent assent, and saw the eyes of my host and hostess turned upon me in questioning scrutiny. In a certain circle of students and mystics he was renowned, continued Santorus, and I resolved to see what he could make of me, what he would advise, and how I should set to work to discover what I had resolved to find. However, at the end of a long and tedious journey I met with disappointment. Heliobus had removed to another sphere of action. "'He was dead, you mean,' interposed Mr. Harland. "'Not at all,' answered Santorus calmly. "'There is no death. To put it quite simply, he had reached the top of his class in this particular school of life and learning, and, therefore, was ready and willing to pass on into the higher grade. He, however, left a successor capable of maintaining the theories he inculcated.' a man named Aselzion, who elected to live in an almost inaccessible spot among mountains, with a few followers and disciples. Him I found after considerable difficulty, and we came to understand each other so well that I stayed with him some time, studying all that he deemed needful before I started on my own voyage of discovery. His methods of instruction were arduous and painful. In fact, I may say I went through a veritable ordeal of fire. He broke off, and for a moment seemed absorbed in recollections. You are speaking, I suppose, of some rule of life, some kind of novitiate, to which you had to submit yourself? said Mr. Harland. Or was it merely a course of study? In one sense, it was a sort of novitiate or probation, answered Santorus slowly with the far-away, musing look still in his eyes. In another it was, as you put it, merely a course of study. Merely! 
it was a course of study in which every nerve every muscle every sinew was tested to its utmost strength and in which a combat between the spiritual and material was fiercely fought till the one could master the other so absolutely as to hold it in perfect subjection well i came out of the trial fairly well strong enough at any rate to stand alone as i have done ever since and to what did your severe ordeal lead asked dr brayle who by this time appeared interested though still wearing his incredulous half-sneering air to anything which you could not have gained just as easily without it santoris looked straight at him his keen eyes glowed as though some bright fire of the soul had leapt into them in the first place he answered it led me to power power not only over myself but over all things small and great that surround or concern my being i think you will admit that if a man takes up any line of business it is necessary for him to understand all its technical methods and practical details my business was and is life the one thing that humanity never studies and therefore fails to master mr harland looked up life is mysterious and inexplicable he said we cannot tell why we live no one can fathom that mystery we are here through no conscious desire of our own and again we are not here just as we have learned to accommodate ourselves to the fact of being anywhere true answered santoris but to understand the why of life we must first of all realize that its origin is love love creates life because it must even agnostics when pushed to the wall in argument grant that some mysterious and mighty force is at the back of creation a force which is both intelligent and beneficent the trite saying god is love is true enough but it is quite as true to say love is god the commencement of universes solar systems and worlds is the desire of love to express itself no more and no less than this from desire springs action from action life it only remains for each living unit to bring itself into harmonious union with this one fundamental law of the whole cosmos the expression and action of love which is based as naturally it must be on a dual entity what do you mean by that asked dr brayle as a physician and i presume as a scientist you ought scarcely to ask replied santoris with a slight smile for you surely know that there is no single thing in the universe the very microbes of disease or health go in pairs light and darkness the up and the down the right and the left the storm and the calm the male and the female all things are dual and the sorrows of humanity are for the most part the result of ill-assorted numbers figures brought together that will not count up properly wrong halves of the puzzle that will never fit into place the mischief runs through all civilization wrong halves of races brought together which do not and never can assimilate and in an individual personal sense wrong halves of spirit and matter are often forced together which are bound by law to separate in time with some attendant disaster the error is caused by the obstinate miscomprehension of man himself 
as to the nature and extent of his own powers and faculties. He forgets that he is not as the beasts that perish, but that he has the breath of God in him, that he holds within himself the seed of immortality which is perpetually recreative. He is bound by all the laws of the universe to give that immortal life its dual entity and attendant power, without which he cannot attain his highest ends. It may take him thousands of years, cycles of time, but it has to be done. Materially speaking, he may perhaps consider that he has secured his dual entity by a pleasing or fortunate marriage, but if he is not spiritually mated, his marriage is useless, ay, worse than useless, as it only interposes fresh obstacles between himself and his intended progress. Marriage can hardly be called a useless institution, said Dr. Braille, with an uplifting of his sinister brows. It helps to populate the world. It does, answered Santorus calmly. But if the pairs that are joined in marriage have no spiritual bond between them, and nothing beyond the attraction of the mere body, they people the world with more or less incapable, unthinking, and foolish creatures like themselves. And supposing these to be born in tens of millions, like ants or flies, they will not carry on the real purpose of man's existence to anything more than that stoppage and recoil which is called death, but which in reality is only a turning back of the wheels of time, when the right road has been lost, and it becomes imperative to begin the journey all over again. We sat silent. No one had any comment to offer. We are arriving at that same old turning point once more, he continued. The Western civilization of two thousand years, assisted, and sometimes impeded, by the teachings of Christianity, is nearing its end. Out of the vast wreckage of nations, now imminent, only a few individuals can be saved, and the storm is so close at hand that one can almost hear the mutterings of the thunder. But why should I, or you, or anyone else think about it? We have our own concerns to attend to, and we attend to these so well that we forget all the most vital necessities that should make them of any importance. However, in this day, nothing matters. Shall I go on with my own story, or have you heard enough? "'Not half enough,' said Catherine Harland, quite suddenly. She had scarcely spoken before, but she now leaned forward, looking eagerly interested. "'You speak of power over yourself. Do you possess the same power over others?' "'Not unless they come into my own circle of action,' he answered. "'It would not be worth my while to exert any influence on persons who are, and ever must be, indifferent to me.' I can, of course, defend myself against enemies, and that without lifting a hand. Everyone, save myself, looked at him inquisitively, but he did not explain his meaning. He went on very quietly with his own personal narrative. As I have told you, he said, I came out of my studies with Aselzion successfully enough to feel justified in going on with my work alone. I took up my residence in Egypt in my father's old home, a pretty place enough with wide pleasure grounds planted thickly with palm trees and richly filled with flowers, and here I undertook the mastery and comprehension of the most difficult subject ever propounded for learning, 
the most evasive complex yet exact piece of mathematics ever set out for solving myself myself was my puzzle how to unite myself with nature so thoroughly as to insinuate myself into her secrets possess all she could offer me and yet detach myself from self so completely as to be ready to sacrifice all i had gained at a moment's notice should that moment come you are paradoxical said mr harland irritably what's the use of gaining anything if it is to be lost at a moment's bidding it is the only way to hold and keep whatever there is to win answered santoris calmly and the paradox is no greater than that of he that loveth his life shall lose it the only moment of supreme self-surrender is love when that comes everything else must go love alone can compass life perfect it complete it and carry it on to eternal happiness but please bear in mind that i am speaking of real love not mere physical attraction the two things are as different as light from darkness is your curious conception or ideal of love the reason why you have never married asked braille abruptly precisely replied santoris it is most unquestionably and emphatically the reason why i have never married there was a pause i saw catherine glancing at him with a strange furtiveness in which there was something of fear you have never met your ideal i suppose she asked with a faint smile oh yes i've met her he answered ages ago on many occasions i have met her sometimes she has estranged herself from me sometimes she has been torn from me by others and still more often i have through my own folly and obstinacy separated myself from her but our mutual mistakes do no more than delay the inevitable union at last here he spoke slowly and with marked meaning for it is an inevitable union as inevitable as that of two electrons which after spinning in space for certain periods of time rush together at last and remain so indissolubly united that nothing can ever separate them and then queried dr braille with an ironical air then why everything is possible then beauty perfection wisdom progress creativeness and a world even worlds of splendid thought and splendid ideals bound to lead to still more splendid realization it is not difficult to imagine two brains two minds moving so absolutely in unison that like a grand chord of music they strike harmony through hitherto dumb life episodes but think of two immortal souls full of a love as deathless as themselves conjoined in highest effort and superb attainment the love of angel for angel of god for god you think this ideal imaginative transcendental impossible yet i swear to you it is the most real possibility in this fleeting mirage of a world his voice thrilled with a warmth of feeling and conviction and as i heard him speak i trembled inwardly with a sudden remorse a quick sense of inferiority and shame why could i not let myself go why did i not give the fluttering spirit within me room to expand its wings something opposing something inimical to my peace and happiness held me back and presently 
I began to wonder whether I should attribute it to the influence of those with whom I was temporarily associated. I was almost confirmed in this impression when Mr. Harland's voice, harsh and caustic as it could be when he was irritated or worsted in an argument, broke the momentary silence. "'You are more impossible now than you ever were at Oxford, Santoris,' he said. "'You out-transcend all transcendentalism. You know, or you ought to know by this time, that there is no such thing as an immortal soul. And if you believe otherwise, you have brought yourself voluntarily into that state of blind credulity. All science teaches us that we are the mere spawn of the planet on which we live. We are here to make the best of it for ourselves and for others who come after us, and there's an end. What is called love is the mere physical attraction between the two sexes, no more, and it soon palls. All that we gain we quickly cease to care for. It is the way of humanity. What a poor creation humanity is, then, said Santoris with a smile. How astonishing that it should exist at all for no higher aims than those of the ant or the mouse. My dear Harland, if your beliefs were really sound, we should be bound in common duty and charity to stop the population of the world altogether, for the whole business is useless, useless and even cruel, for it is nothing but a crime to allow people to be born for no other end than extinction. However, keep your creeds. I thank heaven they are not mine. Mr. Harland gave a slight movement of impatience. I could see that he was disturbed in his mind. "'Let's talk of something I can follow,' he said. "'The personal and material side of things. Your perennial condition of health, for example. Your apparent youth.' "'Oh, is it only apparent?' laughed Santoris gaily. "'Well, to those who never knew me in my boyhood's days, and are therefore never hurling me back to their thirty years or more ago of friendship, etc., my youth seems very actual.' You see, their non-ability to count up the time I have spent on earth obliges them to accept me at my own valuation. There's really nothing to explain in the matter. Everyone can keep young if he understands himself and nature. If I were to tell you the literal truth of the process, you would not believe me. And even if you did, you would not have the patience to carry it out. But what does it matter after all, if we only live for the express purpose of dying, the sooner we get the business over and done with, the better. Youth itself has no charms under such circumstances. All the purposes of life, however lofty and nobly planned, are bound to end in nothingness. And it is hardly worth while taking the trouble to breathe the murderous air. He spoke with a kind of passion. His eyes were luminous, his face transfigured with an almost superhuman glow and we all looked at him in something of amazement. Mr. Harland fidgeted uneasily in his chair. "'You go too far,' he said. "'Life is agreeable as long as it lasts.' "'Have you found it so?' Santoris interrupted him. "'Has it not, even in your pursuit and attainment of wealth, brought you more pain than pleasure? Number up all the possibilities of life, from the existence of the laborer in his hut to that of the king on his throne. They are none of them worth striving for or keeping if death is the ultimate end. Ambition is merest folly, wealth a temporary possession of perishable goods which must pass to others. Fame, 
a brief noise of one's name in mouths that will soon be dumb and love sex attraction only what a treacherous and criminal act then is this creation of universes what mad folly what sheer blind reasonless wickedness there was a silence his eyes flashed from one to the other of us can you deny it he demanded can you find any sane logical reason for the continuance of life which is to end in utter extinction or for the creation of worlds doomed to eternal destruction no one spoke you have no answer ready he said and smiled naturally for an answer is impossible and here you have the key to what you consider my mystery the mystery of keeping young instead of growing old the secret of living instead of dying it is simply the conscious practical realization that there is no death but only change that is the first part of the process change or transmutation and transformation of the atoms and elements of which we are composed is going on forever without a second's cessation it began when we were born and before we were born and the art of living young consists simply in using one's soul and willpower to guide this process of change towards the ends we desire instead of leaving it to blind chance and to the association with inimical influences which interfere with our best actions for example i a man in sound health and condition realize that with every moment some change is working in me towards some end it rests entirely with myself as to whether the change shall be towards continuance of health or towards admission of disease towards continuance of youth or towards the encouragement of age towards life as it presents itself to me now or towards some other phase of life as I perceive it in the future. I can advance or retard myself as I please, the proper management of myself being my business. If I should suffer pain or illness, I am very sure it will be chiefly through my own fault. If I invite decay and decrepitude, it will be because I allow these forces to encroach upon my well-being. In fact, briefly, I am what I will to be and all the laws that brought me into existence support me in this attitude of mind, body, and spirit. If we could all become what we would be, said Dr. Braille, we should attain the millennium. Are you sure of that? queried Santoris. Would it not rather depend on the particular choice each one of us might make? You, for example, might wish to be something that would hardly tend to your happiness. And your wish being obtained, you might become what, if you had only realized it, you would give worlds not to be. Some men desire to be thieves, even murderers, and become so, but the end of their desires is not perhaps what they imagined. Can you read people's thoughts? asked Catherine suddenly. Santoris looked amused. He replied by a counter-question. Would you be sorry if I could? She flushed a little. I smiled, knowing what was in her mind. It would be a most unpleasant accomplishment, that of reading the thoughts of others, said Mr. Harland. I would rather not cultivate it. But Mr. Santoris almost implies that he possesses it, said Dr. Braille, with a touch of irritation in his manner. And, after all, thought-reading is a kind of society amusement nowadays. There is nothing very difficult in it. Nothing indeed, agreed Santoris, lightly, and being as easy as it is, 
why do you not show us at once that antique piece of jewellery you have in your pocket you brought it with you this evening to show to me and to ask my opinion of its value did you not braille's eyes opened in utter amazement if ever a man was taken completely by surprise he was how did you know he began stammeringly while mr harland equally astonished stared at him through his round spectacles as though challenging some defiance santoris laughed thought-reading is only a society amusement as you have just observed he said and i have been amusing myself with it for the last few minutes come let us see your treasure dr braille was thoroughly embarrassed but he tried to cover his confusion by an awkward laugh well you have made a very clever hit he said quite a random shot of course which by mere coincidence went to its mark it's quite true i have brought with me a curious piece of jewel work which i always carry about wherever i go and something moved me to-night to ask your opinion of its value as well as to place its period it is old italian but even experts are not agreed as to its exact date he put his hand in his breast pocket and drew out a small silk bag from which he took with great care a collar of jewels designed in a kind of chain-work which made it perfectly flexible he laid it out on the table and i bit my lip hard to suppress an involuntary exclamation for i had seen the thing before and for the immediate moment could not realize where till a sudden flash of light through the cells of my brain reminded me of that scene of love and death in the vision of the artist's studio when the name cosmo de medici had been whispered like an evil omen the murderer in that dream picture had worn a collar of jewels precisely similar to the one i now saw but i could only keep silence and listen with every nerve strained to utmost attention while santoris took the ornament in his hand and looked at it with an intent earnestness in which there was almost a touch of compassion a beautiful piece of workmanship he said at last slowly while mr harland catherine and swinton the secretary all drew up closer to him at the table and leaned eagerly forward and i should say here he raised his eyes and looked full at the dark brooding sinister face of braille i should say that it belonged to the medici period it must have been part of the dress of a nobleman of that time the design seems to me to be florentine perhaps if these jewels could speak they might tell a strange story they are unhappy stones unhappy exclaimed catherine you mean unlucky no there is no such thing as luck answered santoris quietly turning the collar over and over in his hands not for either jewels or men but there is unhappiness and unhappiness simply means life being put to wrong uses i call these gems unhappy because they have been wrongfully used a precious stone is a living thing it absorbs influences as the earth absorbs light and these jewels have absorbed some sense of evil that renders them less beautiful than they might be these diamonds and rubies these emeralds and sapphires have not the full lustre of their own true nature they are in the condition of pining flowers it will take centuries before they resume their natural brilliancy there is some tragedy hidden among them dr braille looked amused well i can give you no history of them he said 
a friend of mine bought the collar from an old jew curiosity dealer in a back street of florence and sent it to me to wear with a florentine dress at a fancy dress ball curiously enough i chose to represent one of the medicis some artist having told me my features resembled their type of countenance that's the chronicle so far as i am concerned i rather liked it on account of its antiquity i could have sold it many times over but i have no desire to part with it naturally and santoris passed on the collar to everyone to examine you feel a sense of proprietorship in it catherine harland had the trinket in her hand and a curious vague look of terror came over her face as she presently passed it back to its owner but she made no remark and it was mr harland who resumed the conversation that's an odd idea of yours about unhappy jewels he said perhaps the misfortune attending the possessors of the famous blue hope diamond could be traced to some early tragedy connected with it unquestionably replied santoris now look at this and he drew from his watch pocket a small fine gold chain to which was attached a moonstone of singular size and beauty set in a circle of diamonds here is a sort of talismanic jewel it has never known any disastrous influences nor has it been disturbed by malevolent surroundings it is a perfectly happy unsullied gem as you see the lustre is perfect as clear as that of a summer moon in heaven yet it is a very old jewel and has seen more than a thousand years of life we all examined the beautiful ornament and as i held it in my hand a moment it seemed to emit tiny sparks of luminance like a flash of moonlight on rippling waves women should take care that their jewels are made happy he continued looking at me with a slight smile that is if they want them to shine nothing that lives is at its best unless it is in a condition of happiness a condition which after all is quite easy to attain easy i should have thought nothing was so difficult said mr harland nothing certainly is so difficult in the ordinary way of life men choose to live answered santoris for the most part they run after the shadow and forsake the light even in work and the creative action of thought each ordinary man imagines that his especial work being all-important it is necessary for him to sacrifice everything to it and he does if he is filled with worldly ambition and selfish concentration and he produces something anything which frequently proves to be ephemeral as gossamer dust it is only when work is the outcome of a great love and keen sympathy for others that it lasts and keeps its influence now we have talked enough about all these theories which are not interesting to anyone who is not prepared to accept them shall we go up on deck we all rose at once santoris holding out a box of cigars to the men to help themselves catherine and i preceded them up the saloon stairs to the deck which was now like a sheet of silver in the light shed by one of the loveliest moons of the year the water around was sparkling with phosphorescence and the dark mountains looked higher and more imposing than ever rising as they seemed to do sheer up from the white splendour of the sea i leaned over the deck rail gazing down into the deep liquid mirror of stars below and my heart was heavy and full of a sense of bitterness and tears 
Catherine had dropped languidly into a chair, and was leaning back in it with a strange, far-away expression on her tired face. Suddenly she spoke with an almost mournful gentleness. Do you like his theories? I turned towards her inquiringly. I mean, do you like the idea of there being no death, and that we only change from one life to another, and so on, forever? She continued. To me, it is appalling. Sometimes I think death the kindest thing that can happen, especially for women. I was in the mood to agree with her. I went up to her and knelt down by her side. Yes, I said, and I felt the tremor of tears in my voice. Yes, for women, death often seems very kind. When there is no love and no hope of love, when the world is growing gray and the shadows are deepening towards night, when the ones we most dearly love misjudge and mistrust us, and their hearts are closed against our tenderness, then death seems the greatest god of all one before whom we may well kneel and offer up our prayers. Who could, who would live forever, quite alone, in an eternity without love? Oh, how much kinder, how much sweeter would be utter extinction! My voice broke, and Catherine, moved by some sudden womanly impulse, put her arm round me. Why, you are crying, she said softly. What is it, you, who are always so bright and happy? I quickly controlled the weakness of my tears. Yes, it is foolish, I said. But I feel tonight as if I had wasted a good part of my life in useless research, and looking for what has been, after all, quite close to my hand, only that I failed to see it, and that I must go back upon the road I thought I had passed. Here I paused. I saw she could not understand me. Catherine, I went on abruptly, Will you let me leave you in a day or two? I have been quite a fortnight with you on board the Diana, and I think I have had enough holiday. I should like, and I looked up at her from where I knelt, I should like to part from you while we remain good friends, and I have an idea that perhaps we shall not agree so well if we learn to know more of each other. She bent her eyes upon me with a half-frightened expression. How strange you should think that, she murmured. I have felt the same, and yet I really like you very much. I always liked you. I wish you would believe it. I smiled. Dear Catherine, I said, it is no use shutting our eyes to the fact that while there is something which attracts us to each other, there is also something which repels. We cannot argue about it or analyze it. Such mysterious things do occur, and they are beyond our searching out. But she interrupted quickly. We were not so troubled by these mysterious things till we met this man, Santoris. She broke off, and I rose to my feet, as just then Santoris approached, accompanied by Mr. Harland and the others. I have suggested giving you a sail by moonlight before you leave, he said. It will be an old experience for you under new conditions. Sailing by moonlight in an ordinary sense is an ordinary thing but sailing by moonlight, with the moonlight as part of our motive power, has perhaps a touch of originality. As he spoke, he made a sign to one of his men, who came up to receive his orders, which were given in too low a tone for us to hear. Easy deck chairs were placed for all the party, and we were soon seated in a group together, somewhat silently at first, 
our attention being entirely riveted on the wonderful, almost noiseless way in which the sails of the dream were unfurled. There was no wind, the night was warm and intensely still, the sea absolutely calm. Like broad white wings, the canvas gradually spread out under the deft, quick hands of the sailors employed in handling it. The anchor was drawn up in the same swift and silent manner. Then there came an instant's pause. Mr. Harland drew his cigar from his mouth and looked up amazed, as we all did, at the mysterious way in which the sails filled out, pulling the cordage tightly into bands of iron strength. And none of us could restrain an involuntary cry of wonder and admiration as their whiteness began to glitter with the radiance of hoar-frost, the strange luminance deepening in intensity, till it seemed as if the whole stretch of canvas, from end to end of the magnificent schooner, was a mass of fine jewel-work sparkling under the moon. Well, however much I disagree with your theories of life, Santorus, said Mr. Harland, I will give you full credit for this extraordinary yacht of yours. It's the most wonderful thing I ever saw, and you are a wonderful fellow to have carried out such a unique application of science. You ought to impart your secret to the world. Santorus laughed lightly. And the world would take a hundred years or more to discuss it, consider it, deny it, and finally accept it, he said. No, one grows tired of asking the world to be either wise or happy. It prefers its own way, just as I prefer mine. It will discover the method of sailing without wind, and it will learn how to make every sort of mechanical progress without steam in time, but not in our day. And I, personally, cannot afford to wait while it is slowly learning its ABC, like a big child under protest. You see, we're going now. We were going, indeed. It would have been more correct to say we were flying. Over the still water our vessel glided like a moving, beautiful shape of white fire, swiftly and steadily, with no sound save the little hissing murmur of the water cleft under her keel. And then, like a sudden whisper from fairyland, came the ripple of harp-strings, running upward in phrases of exquisite melody, and a boy's voice, clear, soft, and full, began to sing with a pure enunciation which enabled us to hear every word. Sailing, sailing, whither? What path of the flashing sea seems best for you and me? No matter the way, by night or day, so long as we sail together. Sailing, sailing, whither? Into the rosy grace of the sun's deep setting place. We need not know how far we go, so long as we sail together. Sailing, sailing, whither? To the glittering rainbow strand of love's enchanted land. We ask not where, in earth or air, so long as we sail together. Sailing, sailing, whither? On to the life divine, your soul made one with mine. In heaven or hell, all must be well, so long as we sail together. The song finished with a passionate chord, which, played as it was with swift intensity, seemed to awaken a response from the sea. At any rate, a strange, shivering echo trembled upward, as it were, from the water, and floated into the spacious silence of the night. My heart beat with uncomfortable quickness, and my eyes grew hot with the weight of suppressed tears. Why could I not escape from the cruel, restraining force that held my real self prisoner, 
as with manacles of steel. I could not even speak, and while the others were clapping their hands in delighted applause at the beauty of both voice and song, I sat silent. He sings well, said Santoris. He is the eastern lad you saw when you came on deck this morning. I brought him from Egypt. He will give us another song presently. Shall we walk a little? We rose and paced the deck slowly, gradually dividing into couples. Catherine and Dr. Braille, Mr. Harland and his secretary, Santoris and myself. We two paused together at the stern of the vessel, looking towards the bowsprit, which seemed to pierce the distance of sea and sky like a flying arrow. You wish to speak to me alone? said Santoris then, do you not? Though I know what you want to say. I glanced at him with a touch of defiance. Then I need not speak, I answered. No, you need not speak unless you give utterance to what is in your true soul, he said. I would rather you did not play at conventions with me. For the moment I felt almost angry. I do not play at conventions, I murmured. Oh, do you not? Is that quite candid? I raised my eyes and met his. He was smiling. Some of the oppression in my soul suddenly gave way, and I spoke hurriedly in a low tone. Surely you know how difficult it is for me, I said. Things have happened so strangely, and we are surrounded here by influences that compel conventionality. I cannot speak to you as frankly as I would under other circumstances. It is easy for you to be yourself. You have gained the mastery over all lesser forces than your own. But with me it is different. Perhaps when I am away I shall be able to think more calmly. You are going away? he asked gently. Yes, it is better so. He remained silent. I went on quickly. I am going away because... I feel inadequate and unable to cope with my present surroundings. I have had some experience of the same influences before. I know I have. I also, he interrupted. Well, you must realize this better than I. And I looked at him now with greater courage. And if you have, you know they have led to trouble. I want you to help me. I, to help you, he said. How can I help you when you leave me? There was something infinitely sad in his voice, and the old fear came over me like a chill, lest I should lose what I had gained. If I leave you, I said tremblingly, I do so because I am not worthy to be with you. Oh, can you not see this in me? For as I spoke, he took my hand in his and held it with a kindly clasp. I am so self-willed, so proud, so unworthy. There are a thousand things I would say to you, but I dare not not here or now. No one will approach us, he said, still holding my hand. I am keeping the others, unconsciously to themselves, at a distance, till you have finished speaking. Tell me some of these thousand things. I looked up at him and saw the deep luster of his eyes filled with a great tenderness. He drew me a little closer to his side. Tell me, he persisted softly, is there very much that we do not? If we are true to each other, no, already. You know more than I do, I answered. And I want to be equal with you. I do. I cannot be content to feel that I am groping in the dark, weakly and blindly, while you are in the light, strong and self-contained. You can help me, and you will help me. 
you will tell me where I should go and study as you did, with Aselzion. He started back, amazed. With Aselzion? Dear, forgive me. You are a woman. It is impossible that you should suffer so great an ordeal, so severe a strain. And why should you attempt it? If you would let me, I would be sufficient for you. But I will not let you, I said, quickly roused to a kind of defiant energy. I wish to go to the very source of your instruction, and then I shall see where I stand with regard to you. If I stay here now, it will be the same old story over again, he said, love and mistrust, then drifting apart in the same weary way. Is it not possible to avoid the errors of the past? No, I said resolutely, for me it is not possible. I cannot yield to my own inward promptings. They offer me too much happiness. I doubt the joy. I fear the glory. My voice trembled. The very clasp of his hand unnerved me. I will tell you, he said, after a brief pause, what you feel. You are perfectly conscious that between you and myself there is a tie which no power, earthly or heavenly, can break. But you are living in a matter-of-fact world with matter-of-fact persons and the influence they exert is to make you incredulous of the very truths which are an essential part of your spiritual existence. I understand all this. I understand also why you wish to go to the house of Aselzion, and you shall go. I uttered an exclamation of relief and pleasure. His eyes grew dark with earnest gravity as he looked at me. You are pleased at what you cannot realize, he said slowly. If you go to the house of Aselzion, and I see you are determined, it will be a matter of such vital import that it can only mean one of two things, your entire happiness or your entire misery. I cannot contemplate with absolute calmness the risk you run, and yet it is better that you should follow the dictates of your own soul than be as you are now, irresolute, uncertain of yourself, and ready to lose all you have gained. To lose all I had gained? The old insidious terror. I met his searching gaze imploringly. I must not lose anything, I said, and my voice sank lower. I cannot bear to lose you. His hand closed on mine with a tighter grasp. Yet you doubt, he said softly. I must know, I said resolutely. He lifted his head with a proud gesture that was curiously familiar to me. So the old spirit is not dead in you, my queen he said, smiling, the old indomitable will, the desire to probe to the very center of things. Yet love defies analysis, and it is the only thing that binds the universe together. A fact beyond all proving, a truth which cannot be expounded by any given rule or line, but which is the most emphatic force of life. My queen, it is a force that must either bend or break you. I made no reply. He still held my hand, and we looked out together on the shining expanse of the sea where there was no vessel visible, and where our schooner alone flew over the watery, moonlit surface like a winged flame. In your working life, he continued gently, you have done much, you have thought clearly, and you have not been frightened away from any eternal fact by the difficulties of research. But in your living life you have missed more than you will care to know. You have been content to remain a passive recipient of influences. 
you have not thoroughly learned how to combine and use them. You have overcome altogether what are generally the chief obstacles in the way of a woman's higher progress, her inherent childishness, her delight in imagining herself wronged or neglected, her absurd way of attaching weighty importance to the merest trifles, her want of balance, and the foolish resentment she feels at being told any of her faults. This is all past in you, and you stand free of the shackles of sheer stupidity which makes so many women impossible to deal with from a man's standpoint, and which renders it almost necessary for men to estimate them at a low intellectual standard. For even in the supreme passion of love, millions of women are only capable of understanding its merely physical side, while the union of soul with soul is never consummated. Where is that love supreme in which souls meet? Where is it satisfied? An isled on heaving sands, of lone desire, spirit to spirit cries, while float across the skies bright phantoms of fair lands, where fancies fade not and where dreams abide. His voice dropped to the softest musical cadence, and I looked up. He answered my look. Dear one, he said, you shall go to the house of Aselzion, and with you will be the future. He let go of my hand very gently. I felt a sudden sense of utter loneliness. You do not, you will not misjudge me, I said. I, dear, I have made so many errors of judgment in the past, and I have lost you so many times, that I shall do nothing now which might lose you again. He smiled, and for one moment I was impelled to throw hesitation to the winds, and say all that I knew in my inmost self ought to be said. But my rebellious will held me back, and I remained silent, while he turned away and rejoined the rest of the party, with whom he was soon chatting in such a cheery, easy fashion, that they appeared to forget that there was anything remarkable about him, or about his wonderful vessel, which had now turned on her course, and was carrying us back to Loch Scavig at a speed which matched the fleetest wind. When she arrived at her former anchorage, just opposite the Diana, we saw that all the crew of Mr. Harland's yacht were on deck watching our movements, which must have been well worth watching, considering what an amazing spectacle the dream made of herself and her glittering sails against the dark lock and mountains, so brilliant indeed as almost to eclipse the very moon. But the light began to pale as soon as we dropped anchor, and very soon faded out completely, whereupon the sailors hauled down canvas, uttering musical cries as they pulled and braced it together. This work done, they retired, and a couple of servants waited upon our party, bringing wine and fruit as a parting refreshment before we said good night. And once again the sweet voice of the Egyptian boy singer smote upon our ears, with a prelude of harp strings. Good night, farewell, if it should chance that nevermore we meet, remember that the hours we spent together here were sweet. Good night, farewell, if henceforth different ways of life we wend, remember that I sought to walk beside you to the end. Good night, farewell, when present things are merged into the past, remember that I love you and shall love you to the last. My heart beat with a quick and sudden agony of pain. Was it? Could it be true that I was of my own accord going to sever myself from one whom I knew, whom I felt, to be all in all to me? Good night, 
said a low voice close to my ear. I started. I had lost myself in a wilderness of thought and memory. Santoris stood beside me. Your friends are going, he said, and I too shall be gone tomorrow. A wave of desolation overcame me. Ah, no, I exclaimed. Surely you will not go. I must, he answered quietly. Are not you going? It has been a joy to meet you, if only for a little while. A pause in the journey, an attempt at an understanding, though you have decided that we must part again. I clasped my hands together in a kind of desperation. What can I do? I murmured, if I yielded now to my own impulses. Ah, if you did, he said wistfully, but you will not, and perhaps after all it is better so. It is no doubt intended that you should be absolutely certain of yourself this time, and I will not stand in the way. Good night, and farewell. I looked at him with a smile, though the tears were in my eyes. I will not say farewell, I answered. He raised my hands lightly to his lips. That is kind of you, he said, and tomorrow you shall hear from me about Aselzion and the best way for you to see him. He is spending the summer in Europe, which is fortunate for you, as you will not have to make so far a journey. We broke off our conversation here as the others joined us, and in a very little while we had left the dream and were returning to our own yacht. To the last, as the motor launch rushed with us through the water, I kept my eyes fixed on the reposeful figure of Santoris, who, with folded arms on the deck rail of his vessel, watched our departure. Should I never see him again? I wondered. What was the strange impulse that had more or less moved my spirit to a kind of opposition against his, and made me so determined to seek out for myself the things that he assumed to have mastered? I could not tell. I only knew that from the moment he had begun to relate the personal narrative of his own studies and experiences, I had resolved to go through the same training, whatever it was, and learn what he had learned if such a thing were possible. I did not think I should succeed so well, but some new knowledge I felt I should surely gain. The extraordinary attraction he exercised over me was growing too strong to resist. Yet I was determined not to yield to it, because I doubted both its cause and its effect. Love, I knew, could not, as he had said, be analyzed. But the love I had always dreamed of was not the love with which the majority of mankind are content. The mere physical delight which ends in satiety, it was something not only for time, but for eternity. Away from Santoris, I found it quite easy to give myself up to the dream of joy which shone before me like the mirage of a promised land. But in his company, I felt as though something held me back and warned me to beware of too quickly snatching at a purely personal happiness. We reached the Diana in a very few minutes. We had made the little journey almost in silence, for my companions were, or appeared to be, as much lost in thought as I was. As we descended to our cabins, Mr. Harland drew me back and detained me alone for a moment. Santoris is going away tomorrow, he said. He will probably have set those wonderful sails of his and flown before daybreak. I'm sorry. So am I, I answered. But, after all, you would hardly want him to stay, would you? His theories of life are very curious and upsetting, 
and you all think him a sort of charlatan playing with the mysteries of earth and heaven if he is able to read thoughts he cannot be altogether flattered at the opinion held of him by dr brayle for example mr harland's brows knitted perplexedly he says he could cure me of my illness he went on and brayle declares that a cure is impossible you prefer to believe brayle of course i queried brayle is a physician of note he replied a man who has taken his degree in medicine and knows what he is talking about santorus is merely a mystic i smiled a little sadly i see and i held out my hand to say good night he is a century before his time and maybe it is better to die than forestall a century mr harland laughed as he pressed my hand cordially enigmatical as usual he said you and santorus ought to be congenial spirits perhaps we are i answered carelessly as i left him stranger things than that have happened End of chapter 11